Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Last week, you will recall, we were speaking about election. Election. And as I was preaching, I was doing my best to outline the doctrine of election, but I could see from some of your faces that it was kind of a tough one. Sometimes we have to deal with difficult doctrine. Sometimes we have to deal with truths in Scripture which are not always easy to understand. Um, just to recap, the fact is that there is a biblical doctrine of election and that if we've received Jesus Christ, we are elect. Everyone can agree on that. Because we are elect, that means that God has selected us in some way, to be in his family and to receive glory, to receive forgiveness of sins. The question of election is really not that there is election, but that what what does it mean and when does it happen and what does it involve? And uh, the answer that I gave, which is the best answer that I at least uh, have seen, is that We are certainly elected in one sense, in the sense that uh, God has chosen this world and the history of this world to occur in the way that it's occurred. He could have chosen it to occur in a different way. Yes, we can imagine or envisage things going differently for us in our pasts, yes? What What would have happened if this car accident had resulted in something worse than it did. What would have happened if we'd have got this job? What would have happened if, well, there are so many of those things. All of those things would have been known by God, yes? God knows what would have happened if a certain set of events would have been allowed to continue, but obviously they didn't. Uh, it, It didn't happen. So God has chosen a certain set of events to happen And he's chosen that world to to happen. In that sense, then, everything is predestined. Do you understand that? Because he's chosen that particular set of events to happen. So that's God's predestination, his choice. But he has also chosen uh, the, um, let's just call it the choices the choices, the free will choices that we have made, he hasn't made us make those choices. They are our choices. They are our responsibility. So the free will and the exercise of free will has been foreknown by God and in a one sense predestined by God, but from our point of view, they are our choices. God's not forcing them upon us. He's not making us make those choices. So we have a responsibility, do you see? All right, that's why God can be uh, a just judge of us for our choices, and that's why we're responsible for them. So we're electing those senses. Now we can move on from that difficult doctrine to the doctrine of hope. The doctrine of hope. 
Now, it's an interesting fact that the idea of hope was not actually a widespread idea in the ancient world. You might think that it was, but it actually wasn't. Most people in the ancient world thought about hope as a kind of, well, this could happen, and maybe it will turn out well, but maybe it won't turn out very well. Who knows? There was a very strong idea of what was called fate. Yes? You were fated to, to a certain destiny. And so hope was, well, yeah, if your fate works out that way, then great, good. But your fate might be not so, not so positive. And so the idea of hope, you see, was fitted into that rather mechanistic and cruel um, idea of the world. And so it wasn't really very hopeful. Do you see? That's not what uh, Christian hope is. That's not what the Christians understood by hope. They understood by hope as something that was always positive and in Jesus Christ was always certain and fixed. It was real. It was actual. It is something that we are moving towards and it's something that we will come into. We'll realize, we'll see it, we'll feel it, we'll experience it. It's right there ahead of us. Um, you know, we might think about Christmas, okay, for a child. He sees the presence under the tree. So the hope is that he's going to open those presents, yes? Is that a real, a fixed hope? Yes. It's in something that's there. Do you see? But there's this anticipation, this expectation, this excitement about, and somewhat impatience, about opening those presents. That is a much closer idea of what the Bible means by hope than this kind of airy-fairy thing, it might happen, it might not happen. No, listen, the hopes that you have in Jesus Christ are hopes that God has placed in your future, just like those presents under the tree. And one day you get to open those presents. So that's what I want you to, to understand as we read verses 3 and 4 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you now the sentence by the way goes on it's a a big long complex sentence that goes on to about verse 13 but of course we we can't do all of that because there's so much in this uh, passage so we're going to just concentrate on these verses this morning hope here therefore can be rendered 
anticipation, expectation. You expect certain things. Now, if you expect certain things, you can expect certain things either because you are enabled or you are, what's the word? I can't even think of the word now. What they call young people nowadays, that they expect things just because they live. Entitled, that's it. Sorry, thank you. Thank you for uh, helping me there. They're entitled to something. And they have this entitlement attitude, okay? Or there's this expectation because somebody has promised you something. It's the second form of that that is the Christian form of expectation. Okay, we shouldn't feel proudly entitled. Because everything that God has given to us is by his grace. We are not in ourselves entitled to his mercy and his grace. We're not entitled to uh, any of the things that we have in Jesus Christ. These are gifts. And they're wonderful gifts. So a sense of entitlement would be kind of the wrong idea. A sense of having received mercy, a sense of therefore gratitude for his overwhelming grace. What's called here his abundant mercy is the the Christian response. So the first thing I want to point out here in verse 3, is that our hope, our expectation, our anticipation comes from God's abundant mercy. God's abundant mercy. If it hadn't been for God's compassion, God's mercy upon us as sinners, none of the expectation that we can rightly have would be possible. None of the great hopes, which for us right now, many of them are unfulfilled, but none of those would be fulfillable. None of them would be in our futures. None of them would be a reality for us. It is because God And this is God the Father who particularly is being spoken of here. Because God the Father is full of compassion, is full of pity, is full of mercy, that we have entrance to these things. Not just the salvation and forgiveness of our souls, which is in itself a wonderful gift, but also the inheritance, the adoption, the, mercy, the, the glory that is going to be given to us. All of these things that we can, as God's children, anticipate receiving. They come through the mercy of God. In other words, putting it another way, it is because God is this kind of a God. Because he's not a stern, 
um, difficult, unrelenting taskmaster, but because he's compassionate, he's merciful. He's like Jesus in touching the leper. Do you see? Because he's that kind of a God who not only speaks the word, but, but gives the touch, reaches out, that we have all of this expectation. We must not think of God the Father as this stern, angry God. That is not the biblical picture of God the Father at all. It is God the Father who planned your salvation. It is God the Father who sent his Son to save you. It is God the Father who sends the Spirit to indwell you. It is God the Father who will send Jesus Christ back at the right time to consummate the end of this present evil world and the start of the new blessed one. This is all the work of the Father. And, of course, he calls himself your Father. He wants to be known as your Father. Now, you may not have had a very good father. And that's just the reality of this world. Some of our fathers weren't that great. Some of them were less than great. But God the Father wants to be a father in the absolute perfect sense. Everything that's good about a father caring, nurturing, protective, providing, overseeing, guiding. That's God the Father. Involved. And so our hope, which is called a living hope, which I'll get to in a minute, is rooted in the abundant mercy and compassion of your Father. And it would be wrong of us not to acknowledge the Father in that way. It would be wrong of us not to thank God the Father for that mercy and that compassion. Yes, we thank God the Son. Yes, we thank God the Spirit. But here, Peter is calling our attention to God the Father and how merciful and how good he is and how he continues to be that way. It isn't that God the Father has been, has chosen to be merciful to us once in saving us. It is because he is this way now, today. And will be in the future that we can be confident that our relationship to him, as far as he is concerned, is unbreakable. He is your father. 
Now, this is so important and it's so reassuring because, you know, we as his children are not always very obedient children. We're wayward. We are foolish many times. We are ungrateful. We fail to acknowledge all of the mercies that are around us. And we are unthinking. We don't really think very deeply about what God has done in Jesus Christ, what he's doing right now in our lives, what he's going to do for us. Only occasionally are we the kind of uh, children that are fully cognizant of God's mercy. But none of that changes God's intense love and commitment towards us. He is not like us. He is not like that. But he is forever faithful, forever loving, forever committed. And as we were studying the book of Revelation, Jesus says we will be judged, each of us individually, according to our works, which means we're not just judged as one corporate mass, but we're judged individually as individual children of God. And that's the way he wants to deal with us. That's the kind of relationship he wants with us. And it's certainly not easy for him to have that kind of relationship with us if we will not acknowledge the kind of father that he is. So Peter is bringing before us here how blessed God the Father is who has done these things for us in his mercy and his goodness. What has he done? Well, he has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he has given us an inheritance which I'll come to in the third point. So secondly, let us look at what is meant by begetting us again, because that's a strange turn of phrase, isn't it? This simply means that you had a physical birth. And in Jesus Christ, when you trusted in him, you had a rebirth, another birth. Now, what was this other birth? Well, just as your physical birth not only puts you into this world and into this life, it also puts you into Adam. And because of your sin nature inherited from Adam... It puts you also on the wrong side of God. And what you needed more more than anything else is that you needed that birth to be altered, that birth to be changed, that direction to be redirected. And that is what happened when you trusted Jesus Christ. God 
went, as it were, to the beginning, and you had a rebirth. And the old birth and the old relation to Adam was swept away, as it were, in God's sight. All of that sin, all of that condemnation, all of that involvement in the flesh was buried with Jesus Christ. And the new birth that you received was not just a new chance, it was a new relationship. It was a new involvement. It was a new direction. A direction that did not involve God's condemnation on you. Did not involve you meeting up with God at the end of your life and him condemning you. You would not meet that God. That God belongs, as it were, to those who just have the old birth. In the new birth, you never meet that God. You never meet that God because that new birth involved you being in Jesus Christ, not in Adam. That new birth involved God now being your father, not your judge. And he's a very doting father. So you've been born again in Jesus Christ. You've left the old life behind. And you've been born again to a living hope. Now we spoke about hope already, that it's a fixed thing, it's a real thing. It's something that we're going to experience fully. And not very unlike the Christmas presents, which are opened and cast away after a week, or sometimes sooner, this hope, as we will see, is an eternal hope with an eternal luster and an eternal uh, fascination for us. And this living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God the Father, who has planned all this, gives us this hope and he's connected this hope to Christ's resurrection. Here's the great news. Jesus is raised. He's risen already, which means that hope, we're not waiting for Jesus to rise so that we can really lay claim to this hope. No, it's already done. Jesus has been raised. So the hope is set. It's fixed. It's there. And if you don't see it, if you don't realize it, it's not God's fault. It's that you haven't got your eyes open. You haven't got your mind right. It's a living hope because it is connected to the living Christ. He is risen. And he lives forever in glory. He lives forever in perfection. He lives forever as the God-man. And God the Father has connected your hope to that, resurrect, that resurrection.
when Jesus was raised, he was raised gloriously. I mean, impressively. So anything that is connected to that resurrection is going to be impressive indeed. It's, you are not going to be disappointed when you see your hopes realized in Jesus. When you see ye, the inheritance that God has for you in Jesus. You're not going to be disappointed. You're not going to think, oh, well, you know, I was hoping for more than that. It's a living hope because it's connected to the living Jesus. Thirdly, he says that this hope in Jesus is to an inheritance, an inheritance. So when we think about inheritance today, it means the same thing as it meant in Jesus' day, coming into some good stuff, getting a bunch of stuff. You think about an inheritance, you you know, we don't term it like a trivial amount of money, a bit of pocket money or something that's not going to make much difference to our bank account as an inheritance. That's not an inheritance. An inheritance is where you get quite a big lump sum that really changes that bank account or your property ownership. Something that wasn't yours that becomes yours now. And this is what this means. God, because you are in Jesus Christ and because he's so good, has not only saved you, but he has given you individually an inheritance also in his kingdom. And I'm telling you, it's an impressive inheritance. It's not one you want to miss out on. Here's how, the, how it's described. Now, we're not given the details of it. I wish we were. But there's a reason we're not given the details, and that is how can we, how can we in our present situation, with all that we know is this world and all that we have is our, our dulled five senses, how can we possibly appreciate a description of things which are far above this present world? and far greater than our senses can appreciate. Remember that Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly. We don't see very well. And that's just the way that things are for us right now. We do our best. We are given these words of promise that encourage us and tell us to look and tell us to imagine. But when that glass is taken away and we see face to face, wow, will that be different? 
maybe somewhat like a blind person seeing for the first time, a deaf person hearing for the first time. This inheritance then, although it's not described as far as what it is, its quality is described. It is incorruptible. Incorruptible. Now something that's incorruptible, something that is corruptible is something that starts to fall apart something that starts to lose its original luster, its original uh, perfection. We are very well aware of things like that. The second law of thermodynamics works very well in this world. All things run down. Okay? Whether it's us, whether it's an apple that we're eating, whether it's a a new car or a new watch or a new washing machine or a new anything, we know that when we get it new, we we open the package or whatever, that's the best it's going to be. Okay, from then on, we know that next week, next month, next year, and so on, it still might be pretty impressive, but it's not what it was when we first opened it. And come 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, that new dishwasher, fridge, car is going to be on the scrap heap. Very unimpressive, very ugly. We want it carting off long before that. Okay, well... Something that's, that's something that's corruptible. What's something that is incorruptible? Well, first of all, that's something that is as good a million years from now as it is the first day you see it. Secondly, it's something that comes from the manufacturer which is not China. But is heaven. So the quality of it is far above, you know, the um, car or the fridge or anything else nowadays that you get that's made in China. This is made in heaven and it's put together by eternal, an eternal God and eternal angels for you to enjoy eternally. Now, as that, just please think with me, as an eternal thing, it means that it itself has got to be so incredible, so wonderful, as it's not going to fall out of fashion. It's not going to get boring. It's not going to get old hat. You see, things that get boring and things that change and things that get old hat, they do so because we can only put so much into it, so much imagination, so much quality, and so on. And then there's us too. 
who just have this propensity to, uh, you know, get carried away by the latest new thing, and after we've had it for a little bit, uh, we want to turn on to the other new thing. Well, with us changed and our values changed and the inheritance of a different quality, both things will be right for eternal enjoyment. But it's not just incorruptible, it's also undefiled. It's undefiled. That means that not only in its quality uh, will it always be perfect, but there is nothing that will come into it to, to defile it, to make it dirty. Okay? So just, you know, let's be a little trivial. So you won't have, for example, <laughs> you won't have an oven that you'll have to clean. Okay? You won't have a refrigerator you'll have to clean out. You won't have a car that you'll have to detail or wash. It's undefiled. Now think about that. That's a hard one to think about. There'll be no germs. Okay? There'll be no grime, no grease. this thing will constantly shine in its full beauty forever. And then thirdly, it says it does not fade away. It doesn't fade away. It's perpetual, in other words. It keeps working. It keeps being impressive. It keeps being beautiful. It doesn't matter however, how many times you see it, however many times you use it, however, times, however many times you experience it, whatever it might be. It perpetually yields joy and enjoyment and fulfillment. God is the only one who could have designed something like that. Now, Um, there are a few things in this world that give you a glimpse of this kind of enjoyment, this kind of experience. Um, One of them is a sunset or a sunrise. One of them is that beautiful, peaceful um, morning when the, the birds are just singing just right. There's no squawks of crows to ruin things. There's no, there's no wasps buzzing around your ears, you know, so that you can't focus. Everything is calm. Everything is tranquil. Everything is just the way it ought to be. And the sun is just beautiful and the trees are just, you know, and the flowers, everything is just right. We sometimes experience that, don't we? And it never fails to impress us. It never fails to have an impression upon us. So just think about that translated into eternity. 
Because the God who made the bird song, the God who made the flowers, the God that made the order that uh, brings order, the God that made us understand and realize this kind of tranquility is the God who created the inheritance that we're going into. It is indeed a living hope. And so my question here, here, this thing is reserved in heaven for us. It awaits our presence. Individually, I mean. It awaits our uh, arrival. Now, do you possess, therefore, this sense of a living hope? Do you possess it? Is it real to you? Does it animate you? If it doesn't, and you're a believer, then that's because you have not fully realized what God the Father has for you and how much he loves you. Don't, don't wait until the day after your death <laughs> to understand or try to comprehend the depths of the Father's love for you. Try and understand it now through passages like this. Secondly, if you don't have this sense of living hope because you don't really know what I'm talking about because you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Savior and therefore God is not your Father, then what on earth have you got to lose? What on earth are you waiting for? Isn't this promise enough? Isn't this something that you want to experience yourself? Don't you want to experience the Father's love? Don't want, do you want to uh, see an inheritance that he has for you? Before you can do that, you've got to be born again. You have to experience this rebirth so that things start to be new for you, so that this relationship and this hope are given to you. And that means you've got to confess your sins. You've got to confess that you're a sinner and a rebel against God. You've got to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your substitute for your sins. And you will then understand and come into this new experience of a living hope. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we want to acknowledge, Lord, that although we don't see clearly from where we are, these words help us to raise our eyes in anticipation of the goodness that we'll receive. And as we anticipate this, Father, we are filled with gratitude we feel filled with a sense of your goodness and with a need to worship you. 
which is simply, Lord, acknowledging who you are and what you've done for us. You want thankful saints. How can we be thankful if we don't meditate on verses such as this? And so, Father, we do pray. Receive our gratitude. Receive our thanks. And help us, Lord, by your Spirit to always have this vibrant hope, this vibrant expectation of what we are moving towards. It's there reserved in heaven for us. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Paul, for that. And um, happy Father's Day. And I think this is the first time that I've really related that message to happy Father's Day to God the Father. It's always um, focused on our my earthly father and that. To, um, but, uh, yes, it's a, it's a good day to... Uh, be grateful to God the Father who is um, the perfect Father, the perfect Father who um, just wants the best for us and nothing can ever separate us from his love. So um, as we go out this week, may we all be filled with the Holy Spirit and um, maybe touch a lost and dying world and um, just uh, bring that to our presence. And that um, it's already finished. We already have our inheritance. We just haven't got there yet. But we already own it. So it's like it should own it. It should be in our hearts. And that um, we're just in a time of grace that's allowing more people to come to him. And that's why the time, excuse me, that's why the time (laughs) is... um, is here because of his grace to allow more people to come to him and to seek him. So um, we're called to be ambassadors. So as we go out this week, let us remember that, that um, as he sent his son to be an ambassador, uh, that's what we're also called to be, his ambassadors. So um, our uh, benediction comes out of Second Corinthians 1. <clears throat> it is... Uh, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.